for those of you that don't know or care, there are other film podcasts out there. Did you know about this? No, I didn't. I thought yeah. we were the first. They're really unfocused, and they talk about just all kinds of films. What? Yeah, what, what? Well, hang on, hang on. So they don't, like, for example, yeah. review all of, I don't know, maybe, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger's movies? Nope. Not even Adam Sandler's. Not anyone. Wow. Wow. Not even with the initials AS. Just whatever film is out. What sort of world is this? That's ridiculous. Chaos. Should anyway. Should be policed. Should be policed. One of these uh, podcasts is called Film Fandango. And a few weeks ago on the episode where they were reviewing uh, The Nice Guys, they gave a little shout out to this podcast. And we gained about three listeners. One of those was a young man called Justin Van Boxtel. Now... Because of the way that he opens his email, and it's a bit of a film fandango tradition to read out emails in an accent, I'm going to assume that this man is Australian. Australian? So read. Yes. Why? Hear me out. Oh, Hear right, me right. out. I, I just assume because of the name you're South African. Good day, guys. I've been working through all your podcasts since it was mentioned on Film Fandango. You guys mentioned that it was weird that Hercules had an American voice on the radio. That's yeah, we did. To yeah, the last scene of uh, Hercules in New York, yeah. When I found the movie in the early 90s, the movie was titled Hercules Goes Bananas. <laughs> Arnie was overdubbed with that same voice through the whole movie. I read somewhere that it was thought that audiences wouldn't understand him and did the overdub. They must have made that choice in post-production, and it's probably why the radio has a different voice. Yeah, that was That's our pretty theory. much what we thought. It was it? our yeah. theory, yeah. I love the podcast, guys. Love, not like, not am satisfied by, loves it. Nice. And hope Arnie's movies in development come out while your show is still running. Cheers, Justin Van Boxtel. P.S. The other 80s movie that Ernie Reyes Jr. was in is The Last Dragon. That was it. So you've seen that. That was it, That's it. Yeah. Let me just catch everyone up, because Ernie Reyes Jr. was the young kid in... Red Sonia? Justin, you're a legend. You f- you filled a, a hole in my head. I was I was itch. I, it was me, right? I'm sure it was me saying. I'm sure I've seen him something else as a yeah, kid, and you couldn't get I to couldn't it, get yeah. it. Yeah, I didn't even see it on his filmography. But so that's amazing. He must have been a little kid in that as well, because it's the same year as Red Sonia. It's 1985. Yeah, I I vaguely heard of it but i've never seen it and i went and took a look at it on imd it sounds like exactly my brand of craziness yeah so yeah. i'm definitely going to check that movie out yeah it sounds like the kind of shit you and your brothers would have watched <laughs> do you think that yeah or that's why we that's why i saw it that's why i knew him and that's what i knew him from i mean thank you for your email justin it's yeah, really nice awesome. um all the nice things you're saying there but for the fact that you have have saved alex from going insane by naming that movie uh, and also for giving me the tidbit about Hercules Goes Bananas, because I had yeah. never heard that. And the chance to do, I'd say, a fairly good Australian accent as well. Thanks, mate. No, that's terrible. Oh. I don't know. I, I think it's all right, but perhaps it's as he's out there going, fucking hell. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for your email. Uh, if anyone else wants to correct us or give us any little tidbits like that, or just tell us we're great, you can email us at... Theanithology at gmail.com. Hey, wait, you sound just like that guy who does the email thing at the end of our podcast. Simon you... Bates. Who's Simon Bates? Whenever you rent or buy a video, you need to be sure that the film you're watching is suitable for the audience at home. Oh, that guy.
hello, and welcome to the Arnithology. Hi, I, hi. I am, I, I am always, am, Ben Hyten. And I usually am Alex Belletti. And we are... The Arnithology. <laughs> the unofficial Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast. Yeah, that, blah, 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 blah. Uh, We are here to talk to you about the most important Arnie film in our growing up. The, the Arnie film that really got us on a different level of Arnie fandom, I think. It's Terminator 2, bitches! Terminator 2, yeah. I mean, you've been very vocal in the past about this was the one that made it you is. want to watch all his it movies. Yeah. This is definitely the film of his that I've seen the most. It's the one that I've sweeted. <laughs> That's true. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, and also the one I've seen the most, for sure. I mean, I've watched this as much as I've watched Goonies and Back to the Future and Ghostbusters. I think I've probably watched this more, actually. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, for those that don't know, 1991, uh, directed by James Cameron. This is, story-wise, pretty much a retread of the original, but with one crucial twist. There's no Wait! Sh- the spoiler klaxon must be sounded right up front, because we're oh, going to okay. spoil this. Like, this is mega spoils. There's something to be said about every single scene, right? Well, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. It's hyper-mega-spoiler, Klaxon. Uh, okay, well, I don't know what that sounds like, but it probably sounds a little something like this. Sound the hyper-mega-spoiler, Klaxon! She's got a penis. It was Earth all along. He's been dead the whole time. Darth Vader is his dad. Well, so sorry for interrupting you, man, but that's super important because... Number one, right up top, if you have not seen this film and you care at all about Arnie or his career or action movies or sci-fi movies in general, this is a must-see, right? Yeah, and I'd go even further, actually. I'd say, regardless of where this ends up on either of our rankings, I think this, along with the first one, but this for different reasons, is the one Arnie film that has a really important place in cinema history. I agreed. It is a pop culture phenomenon, regardless of anything else, regardless of, again, where it sits in rankings or, or what anybody thinks about its quality as a film. It, it is undoubtedly a phenomenon in and of itself. Yeah, a total classic. But, you know, it's as much, it's more James Cameron's film than it is Arnold Schwarzenegger's film. And I, I'm really struggling. I was thinking towards the end of watching it this time. I'm really struggling to think of a film that single-handedly pushed the envelope for effects and action further forward in one leap than this. That's not to say that there haven't been films that have surpassed it technologically. Oh, sure. I mean, maybe you could say Jurassic Park, but I don't think Jurassic Park holds up as well as this does. And I think the computer effects and the way that they're com- um, integrated into the world that James Cameron creates through cinematography and practical effects and camera trickery and all that sort of stuff. I can't think of a film that's pushed it that quantum leap forward the way that this has. Maybe the original Star Wars. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I agree. I'd say definitely the original Star Wars uh, had a similar effect on, like you said, pushing the bar higher or whatever. Even if there was other films with better effects at this time, regardless of that argument, this film is the one that's pointed at. In terms of effects and effects students, certainly we knew that this film was looked at still at that time. And I, I don't think there was a film at the time that looked no, as I, amazing I as this I did. And so, yeah. you know, if anybody does, then fine. But it, like I'm trying to say, it doesn't matter. Yeah. The point is, is this film is still the one that's pointed at. 
Yeah. Um, because mainly because of its exposure as well, and also because the quality of effects surpasses a lot of what's being shown. Looking back at it now, we can look at it and go, oh, it's been dated and whatever, it's been surpassed now. Uh, there are things that look like effects. There are things that don't look as good as they originally looked, mainly because we expect something, a different aesthetic now, um, but also because uh, we're watching it in higher higher resolution screens and you can see details that you couldn't necessarily have made out. Yes, but I think I'll go to bat for it in the sense that with the exception of some of the makeup effects on Arnie's face, you know, like when he's half Terminator, half human, yeah. which I think you could you could spot even at the time if you yeah. were looking, I think most of the CG stuff still looks fantastic. Oh, agreed, without a doubt. And I, that's why I'm saying dated a bit. Uh, you said with the exception of that, also with the exception of easily noticing uh, stunt doubles as well. Particularly on Edward Furlong. <laughs> Yeah, but, <laughs> but also Arnie on some of the motorbike uh, shots at the beginning. A couple, but, yeah. uh, you know, I watched it in high definition today and, and the, the classic shot where you can spot the stunt level is when he jumps the bike down into the That's storm the drains. The it's not a bad likeness, it, though, actually. Bad. So the thing is, we're, we're nitpicking, right? But yeah, and that's it. None of this takes away from the movie. No, you really have to go looking for things to yeah. not admire in the and, film. You know, it's it's kind of stupid, really, because you assume that, People making great effort to do good effects are doing the best with what they what they have at the time. So it's a bit glib to say, oh, it looks dated or whatever. Everything will date. So this is obviously a sequel to the 1984 film, The Terminator. And while the basic concept of the story is the same, a Terminator is sent back from the future to kill John Connor as a child, whereas beforehand it was his mother before he was born... We don't know which one it is, though, do we? And a, well, and a saviour is sent back, but this time the saviour is also a Terminator, not a human. But we don't know that, do we? Well, no, obviously we don't at the moment that they're sent back. Uh, so the twist this time around is that Arnold isn't the Terminator Terminator, he's the saviour Terminator. And the Terminator Terminator is even more unstoppable than he was in the first film, which is a, a such a simple but brilliant conceit. It worked so well, right, when it first released. When you know it, you know it, and you watch a different movie. But for the first 20 minutes, you're kind of thinking, right, yeah, Arnie's here to kill him. The one thing that kind of spoils it, which I only noticed this time, having seen this film about 25 times, is that when he comes out of the bar, having uh, obtained his clothes, his shoes, and his motorcycle, yeah. On exiting the bar, well, he hasn't obtained the motorcycle yet, or the sunglasses, the this uh, rock music starts. It's bad to the bone or something like that, yeah. right? Bam, 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 bam. And it's such a clue that he's not a bad guy, you know, that yeah. we're kind of meant to like this guy because he's kind of cool. But again, the, 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 the brilliant sort of bait and switch that Cameron does is have the T-1000 go back and assume the identity of a cop. And... That Terminator is yeah. is actually going about an investigation to try and find yeah, it's lovely. Uh, John Connor. It's beautiful. And playing it like, you know, a friendly yeah. neighborhood cop. But even in terms of the look that they've chosen. So, okay, Arnie's the look he's got. He's the look and he's playing the same part of the Terminator. You get this svelte kind of not actually yeah. mean looking guy. Like no, he, kind of, yeah. Not obviously threatening in no, the way that Arnie No, no. And yeah, he, he ends up becoming incredibly menacing and does this menacing look really well. Robert Patrick, who plays the T-1000, is, uh, I guess, not. I wouldn't say better known. He's known for this, yeah. but 
in more recent history, better known for, his, I guess, his part on the X-Files, actually. He had a long run. Well, let's not forget he was the bad guy in the John Cena movie, The Marine. I did not know that he was that. <laughs> He's that. really good in it as well. He's really oh, funny. great, great. And I'm yet, I yet to, yet to see that film. Who knows? Maybe we'll do the John Cena cast. Probably not. Yeah. But yeah, so Robert Patrick, I'm saying he's done, he did a great job giving menacing looks. But within these first 20 minutes, we are supposed to be thinking this guy is the, the savior and Arnie's the Terminator. And that's why I was a little bit upset by the choice to put in bad to the bone there, because it's a little bit of a reveal, perhaps not enough. But I was a bit disappointed because it's one of the things that I really love about this movie is the way that we don't really know who's who. And oh, if any, if they're both out to kill him, even you don't, you sh- I think the audience should be thinking that so that when that moment comes, it's yeah, it's about half an hour in. Yeah, probably when when they're first fighting in that corridor in the Galleria, but a little get bit before down. that, yeah, you get the clue, which is uh, the T one thousand starts like knocking kids over in the arcade to get to John yeah. Connor. Like he's probably not going to protect him, is he? That's you know, that's what I have to say. But I think it's something that gets missed often because we all know, you know, cinema audiences at the time. I don't think would have known that Arnie was playing a good guy. Maybe it was leaked. I don't, I don't have a clue, really. I don't know. I mean, I think if you looked carefully at like the Guns N' Roses music video and the trailer and stuff, yeah. you could see that him and John Connor were sharing screen time together. So right. it, it was kind of... But it was, it's, it was still a fun reveal. And 25 years later, it is still a fun reveal. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I was worried that you were going to sort of downplay it but because I, I think it's such an important part structurally again you know yeah. i stopped short of calling this a, a masterpiece but it's just jim cameron's structuring is so fantastic he knows it how really to build is. it so well and it, you know building and building that tension for the first 45 50 minutes then taking a breather yeah. when they get to mexico and having the philosophy of the film expand yeah. and then to the end of the film the last hour hour 20 is just wall to wall action and chasing and buildings exploding and all sorts. Yeah, and, but not not like relent not relentless in the sense of you starting to oh god come on, you don't get to the steelworks and think oh, this is a foregone conclusion now. This is the no. If you've remembered the first film, you might think okay, it's the same thing as the first film. But the 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 beats that happen in the steelworks just keep going, and there's enough up and down in that yeah. relentless last half hour basically. That you're 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 riding with it in a in a really good way, really fun way. And if Terminator One set up that the Arnie model, the T eight hundred, would never ever stop until you are dead, what Cameron does in this film is present something more advanced that actually the audience is thinking, I don't know how you can stop this thing. Like we've seen how you yeah. destroy a Terminator. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you, do you kill this thing that morphs yeah. that just a absorbs bullets spits them out and and already you've got i mean if you haven't remembered it from the first film how unstoppable a t-800 is we're reminded just in this one beautiful moment where sarah connor she's in a psychiatric hospital that's the point john connor goes to get her once he's worked out that the terminator can follow his orders and all that and this moment the moment when he comes out of the lift in the hospital yeah and her terror her reaction it she's a badass in this and i love it having seen genesis last year and feeling like they really did not get sarah connor right i just didn't feel the same badassery that i feel with this sarah connor i know they've had different lives i understand that but you still kind of want the sarah connor character to be what it is and what we've what we've seen her to be and to see this badass woman who just 
beating a load of guards, plan this meticulous, meticulously sort of worked out escape, like on the fly as well, not not necessarily pre-planned, to then have her crumble, fall over, no way, like no hope, screaming, screaming that he's going to kill us all when the orderlies grab her and stuff. It's amazing. You, she really sells that moment, and and she, you, she does. you get it all. She you get sells the every fear. Moment. You get the fear of if this thing's real, it's going to kill us all. But also, especially in the extended cut, the fear that she might actually be nuts because yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we've established that she's having visions, albeit slightly uh, drug induced, thanks to what the hospital's giving her. Yeah, I love the thing. Yeah, uh, and her hallucinations. So if she's having a psychological break as she's breaking out, yeah. That's just as terrifying. Right? Agreed. And we talked about structuring. There's a, there's this thematic aesthetic. It's it's more than just playing the right music when certain characters on screen. It's more than that. That's one of the points where this thematic aesthetic was used to great effect, because we've already established how things slowed down in her dream and her sort of psychotic episodes and the the pacing of that and the way that that happens at that moment that we're just describing when. Arnie comes out the lift that the theme comes back and it really it's James Cameron doing that time and time again throughout the movie tons of foreshadowing used really well subtly not on the nose necessarily except for like maybe a Miles Dyson scene or whatever but enough to help us to say I know where I am in this movie you don't need to tell me too much you don't need to explain too much because I know what's around I can feel it and that's what good genius filmmakers do and do it really well. And that's been done in every single scene in this movie. There's no... I, I I can say there's no fat on this, even though we both watched the extended cut this time. Even looking at the bits that were cut, I can understand why they were, because there are segments in the movie that do run a little bit long. But being such a big fan of the movie, I'm happy to have those little extra bits. More so in the first half, I, I, I agree. I can see why they were cut, and it doesn't hurt the film to cut them. There are a couple of moments, and I, I would single out the moment where Miles is talking to his wife about working on a Sunday to complete the uh, neural net processor. Yeah, like she wants him to take the kids to the park or something, the water park. Yeah, I think that does actually help expand Cameron's philosophy, because... What his what he is saying to her is this will revolutionize technology, and she's saying, "I get it. I just don't understand why that's important." And you're missing out on your life with your kids, and if your heart and soul is in this processor, that doesn't love you as much as we do. He's learning that with his family at the same time as John and Sarah are learning that this Terminator could actually be the best father figure that he's ever had in a lifetime of disappointing father figures. But the Terminator is learning he'll never understand love, compassion, emotional pain, and therefore can't be a part of their lives as much as they might want him to be. Which is the very reason why Skynet is capable of destroying humanity. Yeah, because it doesn't have compassion. It's yeah. all about humanity. And the, the central thesis is a learning computer would never understand humanity. AI people write into us and tell us how that's not necessarily true. Well, or better not, you know, don't. My understanding is that it's not necessarily true. The reality isn't as interesting as the central thesis is just to pose the question and to mull over it. That scene um, between the Dysons and what it what it says is said later on in the scenes after Sarah Connor goes to try and kill Miles Dyson in a different way. You're judging me on things I haven't done yet. How was I supposed to know? That scene. Yeah. How are we supposed to know? 
Miles Dyson says, yeah. And then she she just goes starts off on a rant that John Connor yeah. stops her. Men like you built the hydrogen bomb. Men like you thought it up. You yeah. think you're so creative. You don't know what it's like to create something, to create a life, to feel it growing inside you. Or you know how to create is death and destruction. She And she gets interrupted, quite rightly so, by the saviour of humanity, who then says, hey, cooler heads, let's let it prevail. Because we've just seen Sarah Connor being the destroyer. I mean, quite literally, they play Arnie's theme music when she is going... Th- She's just tried to sniper him through the window. That didn't work. She pummeled his office with a bun- bunch of bullets and then marched her way over to the house with a handgun. During that march, she's she's essentially become the Terminator. She's lost her humanity. She doesn't have the balls to do it in the end. Well, I think, crucially, she can't kill a father in front of his wife and child. That's that's it. That Her humanity takes over. You know, maybe it's worth stepping back a little bit and just looking at the key cast, because that, I think, is what's most interesting about Sarah Connor in this film, is that in the first film, we saw her develop into something approaching a warrior, a survivor more than anything. Yeah, a soldier. She's a soldier. In this film, we pick up 10, 12 years later, where she's not only been on the run and trained with all kinds of different military types and, you know, raised her child to be like that as well and had her child taken away from her and, you know, institutionalized. She's the next evolution of what Cameron did with Ripley in Aliens. Oh, so bang on, bang on. The the warrior mother. But in this, she's so much more the warrior. I mean, she's tougher than most dudes in this film, easily. I mean, there's there's almost no fat on her body at all, and she's she's shaped like a V-shape, you know? Yeah. But that doesn't rob her of her femininity and her Her maternal... Her humanity, yeah. But very specifically femininity, okay. I'd say, uh, in terms of being maternal mm. and and protecting her child. True. And, yeah. and this is what I love about the way Jim Cameron writes women, is that he doesn't just write a man and take away the set of balls. He writes a, a woman who is tough and tougher than men in their own rights, but still 100% yeah. a woman. I, I don't know a single mother, uh, maybe they, are, they do exist out there, um, who wouldn't destroy the world to save their child uh, yeah you know that totally. fierce protection is is ingrained it's it's inbuilt and quite rightly so oh all right this was made seven years after the first film but the cast don't look so much older that it wouldn't have been believable but i think it's it's nice that we don't pick up exactly at the end of the first film i agree we pick up having had a lot of things change yeah, yeah. Uh, and it gives time to have that reverse engineering that's brought into miles bennett dyson's world where they They've discovered the chip in the factory yeah. and that took them down a route where the future war would happen sooner, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, you said there's no fat on the film. I, I think more than that, it, and it's something that we spoke about with the first film, it's the little details at every point that really make this. And sometimes yeah. that's in selling an effect and sometimes it's in selling a character. Yeah. But there's so much care and thought gone into every last little bit of the frame yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, that's why I think just to kind of round up our little conversation there about the scenes that were cut and how it doesn't, those themes don't disappear completely and how we see them later on. If that scene with the Dysons is saying those machines, that the machines won't ever love you. The scene with Sarah Connor saying you won't ever lose your humanity. And I, But I, the reason that I like the addition of the scene with the Dysons is his wife's trying to tell it to him in a loving way. Yeah. 
and she wins. And then Sarah tells it to him in a fearful way and it destroys him. And I think we've talked off mic about films having secret weapons. And I think Joe Morton playing Dyson is totally the secret weapon of this film. Awesome. He gives such a great performance with so little screen time. He's only in about 10 or 15 minutes of the film. You know, he has basically had a Hollywood career on the basis of this performance. And he is the heart. He really sells that moment of when he's shot in the shoulder and his bottom lip goes and he thinks, I'm going to die and I don't know why. He sells that so that when Sarah cracks and can't shoot him, you you get it. You totally get it. And I know what you're dying to say is is his final moment. But before you do, before you do, I, I mean, it's a great piece of performance, that, his final moment. But it's so heroic. There was yeah. such a brilliant heroism about that, it's, about it's, a guy destroying his life's work after finding out an hour earlier that he could be the Hitler of the future. His, you know? whole, his whole performance leading up to that bit. There's a little tiny thing that I didn't bother checking out because I just want to see if you found it. Before his death scene, do you notice who the SWAT team guy is? Who... Yeah, we mentioned him uh, on Total Recall. Yeah, prawn face. Yeah, Dean Norris. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Like I, I barely recognise him through his mask, but he's yeah. there too. It was really excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was really nice to that's, see. Him. That's uh, that's Hank from Breaking Bad to most people. If you didn't listen to Total Recall, go on. Do do you do you Bennett Dyson? Go on, do it. That's just going to sound really bad on the recording, right? It's just not going to sound as good. I don't know how much longer. It's really hard. It's yeah. really hard. <laughs> he's gasping for breath. They are literally his last breaths. Yeah, he's and been shot he about ten times. what he decides to do with his last breaths is hold a weight with an arm that he's clearly been shot in above the trigger to the explosives that they've rigged this whole area with. And he's literally, he blows the entire floor, if not. The floors above and below. It blows the whole face off the building. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an impressive explosion, and no doubt we've seen impressive explosions before. Before, but it's the largest explosion in the film so far, and the build up towards it has been extraordinary. The whole scene, how they break in, everything. You know, this is where that pacing really comes into it, and it's not an onslaught of explosions. There are films where you see huge, massive explosions. It doesn't do anything for me. But this moment with his death, I mean, epic, epic death scene. And it might be a bit morbid to say it's my favourite death scene. I don't think that's a... But it's more to do with real credit to the actor that plays Mark Dyson. What's his name? Joe Morton. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, I mean, it's really so iconic. It's it's really iconic. And that's, you know, that is down to him. But I think as death scenes go, it's not a tragic moment. It is a heroic moment. For sure. And I guess that's why it's appropriate to say favourite. I mean, given all the circumstances, given the fact that he's definitely going to die, yeah. he's he must have been shot like seven a or good eight 10, times. 10, 12 times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the thing to do. And... Story-wise, it vindicates Sarah's decision not to kill him. If you're a real pragmatist, you'd say, shoot him. Like, they're all going to die anyway. And like Sarah, Skynet would have done. Yeah, exactly. And Sarah's Sarah's been in an institution where she's been saying that the whole time. We see how she's become more like that when she's breaking out. And she's holding a syringe to the uh, doctor's neck. That doctor, man. Dr. Silverman. Biggest douchebag in the world. Like, <laughs> we got to hate him, right? <laughs> well, he's operating within his frame of reference, okay? Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah? 
Dr. Silverman. Yeah. Crisp from Kindergarten Cop. Who's the bigger douchebag? Well, hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, the moment that made me think that um, Dr. Silverman is so delusional himself, I guess. It's appropriate within the frame of reference he's working in to think that Sarah Connor's insane. So, okay, fine. Yeah. Uh, he's a bit of a dick about it as well. He doesn't treat her very well and neither do the orderlies, which we'll come to as well, I'm sure. <laughs> but there is a moment when the police have actually put two and two together and worked out that the T-800 that was caught on CCTV in, a, in shooting out the police station from the Terminator, it's the same guy or looks identical. It isn't the same Terminator. But it looks identical to um, the T-800 now that was seen in the Galleria. They go to Sarah Connor in the psychiatric facility or hospital. They question her and say, look, we know you know this guy. You'd think there would be something, right, that would make Silverman sort of question, like, maybe some of Sarah's story is true. But it's it's a pretty hard leap to say. Yeah, it's... It's illogical, right? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to say a Terminator from the future. I would find it quite hard to believe, I'm sure. Anyway, I hate him because I'm invested in the movie and I want our protagonists to win and do well. He plays it well, for sure. The orderly that's um, got a bit of a thing for Sarah. Yeah, the the bit where he straps her into a bed just before she escapes. And he, he, he's got a long lizard tongue, that dude, as well. Uh, but yeah, he just licks all the way up her it's, face. It's, if not the creepiest one of moments that I've ever seen in cinema. It, like, it is super You can super discount creepy. Like, horror and all that. It's it's horrible. And she's chained to the bed, right? She can't get up. She's strapped to the bed. So. She's in restraints, yeah. yeah. So I was thinking, like, in reality, and we know that this is a reality, he he probably would have assaulted her in some way. So the film could have gone there. You know, it could have yeah, yeah, it could have. had her break out with him assaulting her. Uh, a bit like in Kill Bill with Buck and, yeah, and the yeah, Bride. Yeah. But I think actually going for that that more what is this de- what is this guy's deal moment where he just licks her and, and he's sort of self amused and a little bit confused himself, where he just sort of goes, Huh. I just you know, did and that. Walks yeah, yeah, I just did that, yeah. And walks away. That that is creepier by far. But totally enough, right? For us to be totally fine with the way that she brutally Love smacks it. him across the face with a smashes him in the face with a with half a broomstick, broomstick. <laughs> mop stick or whatever, yeah. Um, and that's you know that scene for me, the whole thing with her in the hospital. It would be really difficult to imagine that the Linda Hamilton that we've seen in Terminator could be the Linda Hamilton or the Sarah Connor that we see in T two. It, full credit to Linda Hamilton for doing whatever she did, whatever work she did, whatever workout she did in order to really sell that she's been training as a soldier for the last 10 years. And now here she is. And that sell, it sells it to me. You know, she's fierce in this. Yeah. And in 91, actually, that was just as much of a shock as finding out that Arnie was the good guy. It, it yes. Yeah. Was to see her transformation because we hadn't really seen someone go from being so soft as a woman, to so tough and aggressive like that. And I don't think Ripley counts because she's more about firepower uh, and protection, whereas where Sarah Connor smart, is just smart pure well, aggression, yeah. you know, in that. Yeah. Absolutely full credit to her. And, and on the making of, of DVD, you see her training with, you know, Marines and things like that. 
So there's two two other cast members I want to get to before we get to Arnold himself. You mentioned Robert Patrick. Definitely cast well for his face. He's got that sort of mm-hmm. angular look. But again, in the same way that we talked about Arnie's movement in the first film, I really like the way that Robert Patrick moves in this as well. Because you kind of understand before you're told that he's liquid metal. Yeah. That he is liquid metal. And oh, again, it's that smooth... Yeah. He's much. He glides a lot more. Yeah, but still robotic because each step is identical to the next. So, um, yeah. but still, uh, yeah, there precision. is a smooth gliding. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I like. Yeah, and um, the elephant in the room, the, the the controversial member of the cast, Edward Furlong, as the young John Connor. <sighs> I'm glad. I'm glad you mentioned it. I don't know what to say without being unkind, and because I love this film so much. I really, I really don't want to be. He's the worst thing about this movie. That's true to say. Conceptually, he is. Con- yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I was saying performance-wise, he's the worst I thing I don't about think movie. he gives a bad performance. That's the thing. Oh, I really... You're grimacing when you say it, because I think that it's fair to say there are moments when it doesn't quite work, or it's kind of cringeworthy. But he really sells some other scenes really well. So that's why it's, it's okay. And what I, what, I, what I have done every time I've seen this, and I'm willing to be challenged on this, is I've said, it's because he's a 10-year-old kid. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely not 10. No. But yes, he's but supposed to be 10. He looks young enough to play 10. And so when he's acting, acting a little bit chi- childish, and it's a bit sort of embarrassing, like some of his acting, I just, I still like watching it. I, I kind of cringe at it. I'm like, yeah. You know, it's a little kid showing us... The, the joy for humanity he, he's teaching the terminator to not kill when that's exactly what the terminator is designed to do and not just kill to kill humans yeah and plus the terminator has to do everything he says and yeah. his first reaction is cool yeah um and it could be because some of his dialogue's a bit dated like and i think that's what it is 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 uh, there's a lot of stuff in the first half of the film you know like having bad to the bone and guns and roses on the soundtrack uh, and the dialogue that John Connor has where he's teaching the Terminator slang. I don't think Jim Cameron has ever been the cool guy, right? He certainly <laughs> isn't now. Oh, poor Jim. No, he's he cool. isn't, though. He's a super cool. dork. No, Is he's he... a dork. So you're saying that Jim Cameron's dorkiness transferred and projected straight into John Connor car- into the John Connor character. I, I, it's like if Millhouse was trying to write cool dialogue, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but even at the time watching it, we, as kids watching it, I was, what, I was 12, 13, maybe, we looked at John Connor and he, we just, we would call him a dweeb. We'd say, just, that guy's not cool. But that's okay, though, because he's a weird kid, right? He was raised in this totally. weird way. Yeah, he's, he's not horrible at bringing, yeah. yeah. And why would he know how to relate? But he's, his whole bravado is of trying to be cool and all that. He believes it himself because he's a kid, and I. Everyone believed how cool they were as a kid. What I, I what I want to get to though is I think over the years Edward Furlong has been blamed with things that are not necessarily his fault, in my opinion. All right. And they are his squeaky voice because he was going through puberty. <laughs> Nothing to do with him, not his fault. No. And Jim Cameron's dialogue. Yeah. So it does. Now that you mention it, it does sound like his uh, uh, John Connor's dialogue or Edward Furlong's dialogue does sound like the kinds of things that your parents would say to try and be cool. But I didn't think about it that way. I just thought maybe all teenagers being really cool, like always dates, 
Oh, of course it does. Yeah, of course it does. And, yeah. and you know, the amount of times that we've used the word cool, I'm sure is not cool, right? Yeah, but I genuinely, I, I looked at him very carefully this time. And I thought, I'll, I'll remind you of this conversation when we watch Last Action Hero. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know what you're supposed to do because you're asking child actors to sell concepts to an audience that they don't necessarily know or understand or identify with. It's very difficult. I think it's unfair to say that Edward Furlong does a bad job in this film. Yeah, I agree. And I think you quite rightly called it the elephant in the room. When I say he's the worst thing about the movie, that's in an already excellent film. Yeah, and I happen like, to think you're right, by the way. And and yeah, but to say that he is bad is not... I'm not yeah. going that far. So yeah. you, you're talking like... If we're going to grade the percentage of every aspect of this film, I'm putting it in the high 90s for everything. Edward Furlong gets 80s, you know, that's all. It's not like he's super bad, you know. And again, in the same way that we're seeing a development of Sarah's character, I think John Connor's arc in this film is quite interesting in terms of him. Not only do we start to see how he becomes the leader of the future, he's the conscience that Sarah doesn't have. Well, has lost but yes, she he's there to remind her, yeah. Yeah, and that she has given him. We're also seeing him find a father figure for the first time and lose him. Yeah, and she does a lovely speech about it. Yeah, in an insane world, he was the sanest choice. Yeah, it yeah. sells it to us. It also sells her decision to kind of say, it's what allows her, it's, it's, it's a really nice little bit of allegory. It allows the introduction of a machine into John's life that can protect him in a way that none of the other men that she tried to get as protectors that she was using to train and to train her and to train him uh, were good enough to protect him. And she even says, like, he won't get drunk and hit him. Yeah. He, he won't complain about having to spend time with him. He'll always be there for him. And her recognition of that is what allows her to drop her humanity, her motherhood, and just say, fuck it, I'm going to go and kill Dyson. And she becomes a Terminator, albeit for 10, 15 minutes. It's still, that's what she becomes because she's in some way in her head has made a decision. That's the only way this is going to stop. That's the only way I can stop Judgment Day. I have to say that I wouldn't go as far as saying I'm a pragmatist and I would have killed Miles Dyson there and then, not necessarily. But there's a part of me that thinks, really? Like against the whole world? Like against the destruction of the whole world? Yeah. And, and Arnie's saying that to him. Killing yeah. Dyson might actually prevent the war. Yeah, but when cooler heads prevail, and that's what sells John Connor as a, a leader, is we learn, actually, it wouldn't. And he said, and Miles Dyson says, well, I'll just stop my work. Like, you know, yeah, still enough, still scared from the fact that he was almost killed. And, you know, do I'll do anything to not be, guys, don't kill me. I'll just stop my work. And then that revealing, like, actually, it won't do anything. Because the chip's still there and somebody else will follow up his work. It's... I think philosophically there's another point, though, there when Arnold's saying to Edward Furlong, you know, killing Dyson might actually prevent the war. And John Connor says, I don't care. Don't you get it? People have feelings. They hurt. And I think the message there is, what's the point in saving the world if that's how you go about doing it? Yeah, and that's, that's the point that I'm contending. Uh, culturally speaking, it's... One one will not be criticised if we stand up and say, if we do it this way, what's the point? Yeah. So I'm not willing to be part of a world where in order to have world peace, I've had to kill to get that. Right. 
even if it's just one person, right? We see that a lot in films. And yet we don't actually live in that culture. We live in a culture where to meet ends, to meet certain ends, lots of people are killed all the time. And and I'm not saying just by pointing out the way that things are, that doesn't mean that I'm saying that's how they should be or it's what I think should be. Yeah. If it, if it was the case that killing Miles Dyson would have ended the war, killing Miles Dyson doesn't destroy your humanity. It means that for a moment you put your humanity aside for the greater good. And that's a, a value worth exploring as well. As well as the idea, not instead of, but as well as the idea of if we do this, what do we become and whatever. I don't think that a single act turns you into the thing that no, we're trying no. to fight against. And so I, I, want, I, I don't want it to be um, a cut and dry point. And I do think that that's what this film is saying. It's saying it is cut and dry like that. There's humanity and then there's machines. And that's the central thesis. It's the same in, um, it's loaded. It's really, it's much less subtle in The Terminator. But I'd like to think that there was an idea that it's a little bit more nuanced, especially with the introduction of Arnie as a Terminator that protects as opposed to terminates and the conflict that he has at the end, the sort of computational conflict. Well, don't you think, though, that the way that the film goes about saving Miles Bennett Dyson from Sarah Connor, although they don't actually get there in time to do that, she just does She does stop it on her own, yeah. Yeah. But they actually simply talk to him and explain to him what the effect of his work is. Yes. And that prevents the creation of Skynet yeah. in this timeline. Yeah. Let's not get into the sequels. No. At the same time as talking to the end result of his work, which is the neural net processor, which is the T-800, mm. is teaching a machine about what it is to be human. Now, Arnold's realisation is that he can never be human, but the final sentiment of the film is that he had learnt the value of life. Yes, exactly. So that is where that nuance exists. It's the, it's the progression of the theory. That's what this film is. Yeah, so I don't, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily cut and dry in, in terms of... Yeah, I, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just yeah. expanding upon No, no, that's all right. You're, you're right. It's, not, it's cut and dry throughout the whole film up to that point, the point that you just were saying. So you're correct that saying that the film itself in its entirety is an adjustment of the cut and dry philosophy of machines are robotic and cold and you'll never get love from them and we will never be like machines. This film does introduce a sort of more nuanced idea saying, well, we can try to be like Sarah does and also machines can learn too, which that's the fascinating point. And as AI advances, we are having to explore those questions. The conflict that Arnie has at the end or the T-800 has at the end, is really fascinating. At some point in the movie, he's given an order by John Connor to not kill. Yeah. That's done. There's no going back on that now. He's also been given orders. Well, primary to all of that, his orders are to stay with John Connor and to listen to all his orders. He's then given an order, well, by John and Sarah, I guess there's an agreement between them, to stop Skynet. And this is after they've taken out his chip, like, that would prevent him from learning and advancing his computing. They reset him or whatever, right? So he's got an order to listen to John's orders, to protect John at all costs, and to destroy Skynet. There has been contention about the the ending where he's, I cannot self-terminate and he convinces yeah. Sarah to, or doesn't convince her at all, just says, do it. You know, you have to do it. And he gets on the thing and she lowers him into the, the vat of molten stuff. 
there's been people saying it's a rubbish ending and that the sentiment between him and John is unbelievable. Like you wouldn't believe that he would do that. And it's really dry because it's, and it does, it's not believable that he would do that. It's like, well, how else do you play a learning computer learning to the point where it says, I can understand up to this point. That's exactly the dialogue that he uses. And what's the conflict that he's having computationally is it's actually just two against one. Like John could order him not to die, but he's already given him two other orders, which is don't kill humans, which he will do if he keeps living and destroy Skynet, which he has to do. So it's, it's still following John's orders, even though in that moment he's saying don't die. And that's the thing. It's like, so I've heard people saying, well, he says don't die. So that's where there's some sophistication and thought put in behind the evolution of the T-800 character, his motivation and his understanding there. And I think sometimes that, get, that gets overlooked. And it's a really important part to the film, to, to what, what we're seeing in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I think if anyone was going to criticise anything in that scene, I, I mean, you can say the thumbs up's a bit hokey. It, it's still right. iconic. I, I love it. I know, that, I know that that is a scene that has brought men to tears as well. So yeah. that's fine. Not me, actually, for once. But I think the the bit that rings false in that scene is when the Terminator is saying, "Sorry, John, I have to go. I have to go away now." Like that. Yeah, that's, that's a, a very. Like, I'm a dad going away now. Yeah, and exactly that scene would have sold itself if there was just a tiny moment, perhaps when she's taking bullets out of his back. If there was some kind of TV show playing or a film playing where <laughs> that's what a dad was saying to his son. Old Yeller. Or yeah, something yeah, like that. something like Old that. Old Yeller's got to go to the farm, little Johnny. Yeah, that's the only way it would sell. And I think it would fix it. It would fix it. But it's we're nitpicking, right? We're, we're nitpicking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you could argue, again, it's his learning computer. So he's learned to say the right thing to John, the thing that a father would say. And that's, that's again, where I don't, I don't accept the criticism. It's like, you're talking about the most advanced computer that humanity's ever created. And it has continued to learn afterwards. And its programming has been uncapped as well. So it's capable of mimicking human behavior in so many ways, which we've already seen, like the ability to mimic voices. And you can see the T-1000's ability to do that. Understandably, it can feel like it doesn't ring true. I get it because we still have these ideas about what a robot is and how it's supposed to act. A cybernetic organism. I'm not a robot. I know now why you cry, but it's something I can never do. There's nothing wrong with that. Right, yeah. But the... uh... But the sorry, John, I have to go. I'm just, I'm just going over there. Yeah. Turn your back. Yeah, I'm going out to get some cigarettes. I'll be back soon. I, w- I just want to go back to the what I said earlier about the details and how the details really, really sell the okay, film. Cool, cool. Because he's the good Terminator. In the first Terminator, he gets all the weaponry he can by robbing a gun store. In this one, he just collects guns and ammo as he goes along from everyone. There's the bit where he shoots the security guard at Pescadero State Hospital in the knees and he just checks and takes two clips away from him. And he's already got the pistol off the biker. He's got the shotgun off the other guy at the bar. And then obviously they get the arsenal in Mexico. It's so cool because it it just, it's so simple as well because I don't know about anyone else or or any other, you or any other listeners, but it's something that bugs me so much in movies where You're up against a huge force. You know you're going to meet lots of people. Take the gun. Take the bullets. So often, they don't. And it really jars. 
And I know that the reason why they don't do it is because it would make the subsequent scenes easier and they don't the, the writers don't want that. There should be some reason why they can't take the gun or something a little bit extra that just gets around that very logical like god why why won't you take the gun why won't you and that's it's great that in a movie where there's lots of reasons to take the gun that the the most logical presence in the movie does exactly that before during and after the hospital breakout scene there's a couple of moments where i think shows why i respect uh, jim cameron so much as a filmmaker and this is about using everything in his arsenal to sell an effect sell the weight of a moment you have a scene where the uh, the guard the ginger guard walks along the floor and the t-1000 comes out of the floor and he spread himself over a checker floor basically i mean just the effect of that was a total wow moment in in 1991 no was, question yeah. but there's more sophistication to that scene yeah. than just brilliant Effects, cg yeah. yeah because there's a combination there of the CG of the floor rising and morphing into the shape of this guard. He's then also using actual twins to stand opposite one another. Yeah. Yeah, when he stabs him through the eye. He's then also using Stan Winston's robotic shop to create a fake head so you can see the guy twitching when he's got the blade through his eye. And there's there's also later on, uh, just a little bit later, there's a moment that I really, really like when uh, the T-1000 comes to, uh, it's like a prison door, like bars, and he just merges through it. And as he turns back into Robert Patrick on the other side, his gun gets caught in the bars. Excellent little detail. And also, like, when there's this foreshadowing going on as well in terms of details, I'd like to hear more of your details, but I'm just coming in on off the back of that scene that you just said. You were talking about the floor and he comes up from the floor. When he starts first walking towards the, the guard getting the coffee. Oh, and his, his, and his boot, boot sticks. His boot yeah. sticks. That's foreshadowing the all the stuff at the end that we see. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, sure. his boots. Yeah. And so it's like, he's not quite perfect. He's kind of, he. this yeah. can happen to this Terminator. Like, it's a clue. Another brilliant bit, just because I've gotten to foreshadowing, and that is when Miles Dyson is first sort of casually working in the lab. It's the first time we see him. Um, and no threat or jeopardy here. He goes into uh, the vault where um, the arm from the first Terminator is kept and the chip as well. And he he goes in and you see a shot where you see the arm is sort of in the foreground in focus and Miles Dyson is sort of staring up at it. And it mirrors the shot exactly where when Arnie's, they've broken into his home or broken in, they've come to rescue him, I guess. And he rips off his flesh to reveal his robotic arm. Now listen to me very carefully. Yeah. And you see the the arm in the foreground and Miles Dyson's scared shitless face behind it as well this time. But it it's excellent because it's it's those two moments. He's still looking up at the arm in awe, but it's also saying this thing that you're so marvelling over, it's so destructive. It doesn't just not just the destruction that the Terminators bring to this time, it's what they mean. And what it means for humanity, like your interest, your intrigue in this and this technology is going to be the end of you. And that is that's the central thesis. It's saying, you know, yeah, it is. We it is. we have something more than science, intrigue and technology. We have our humanity, which is the thing that we should be capitalizing on, not the advancement of technology. I think if ever there was a point 
made by a filmmaker uh, in a succinct way. It's uh, the Terminator saying to John Connor, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves. Mm. You know, they've already raised the specter of Oppenheimer and the uh, nuclear bomb uh, in the Sarah Connor versus Dyson scene. And Jim Cameron is essentially presenting the idea that AI could be the same thing. Mm. We're so concerned about uh, trying to achieve the creation of this AI that we perhaps haven't given enough thought to what unleashing it will do if it learns faster and is more pragmatic than we are Mm. and crucially devoid of compassion. What we're not talking about is uh, this is quite simply one of the greatest big budget action movies of all time. And in that sense, it hasn't aged. The, the every chase in this film is still thrilling some, yeah, with the exception of some of the effects work, I think all of that stuff looks great. This was the most expensive film ever made in 1991. Not the first time that uh, James Cameron had made the most expensive film of all time, and certainly not the last time he would go on to make the most expensive film of all time. Arnold retained his spot as the world's highest paid actor, £15 million on the barrel head for this one. We've barely talked about him. It's amazing that we've talk so much about the movie because the movie's so great and we haven't yet really we've hardly mentioned Arnie we've said his name and we said that he's playing the T-800 on the one hand it's like watching him put a comfortable set of gloves back on we know that he can do this yeah I was I was gonna say it's like I'm so familiar with the movie that it's like he's part of the set he's he is a special effect essentially what goes on top of all of that is the stuff that we might have said is more awkward. Is certainly more comical than anything in the first film, which is uh, the put your leg down and stuff like that. Yeah. And chill out, dick wad. Uh, how does that sit with you? And how do you think Arnold handles it? Again, it's like Arnie in the film is, for me, is like the motorbike. There's like these iconic parts of the film that, I can't separate from the movie and I can't... It's difficult to comment on Arnie's performance because I see those bits. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I think Arnie's performance with what he's given is excellent because he's playing a Terminator doing exactly what he's told to do by this kid, asking him to do like stupid stuff. The way that he does it doesn't matter. Whether I'm I'm like, oh, that bit, I don't like that bit, whatever. That's a writing thing. He does well with what he's given to say. Yeah, yeah. And he, yeah. he so for me it's like, yeah, that's what happens when you ask a terminator to say no problemo and chill out, dickwad. I don't think they detract from the film. Um nor do I think they necessarily work to hit the point home that John Connor is making this terminator more human. I think there are other things that do that better. If I'm going to be nitpicky, I'd say that those scenes, if that's the purpose of those scenes, it's making it heavy-handed. If the purpose of those scenes is to provide comic relief, I think it works for some people. I think it certainly worked for me when I first saw it. This, I'm so ready to see them that on this viewing, I, I didn't have a strong feeling about them either way. Well, how, how did it sit with you? Uh, it's fine. I mean, I, th- I, you know, when you say Edward Furlong is the, is the least good thing about the film, I think that's where it comes from, is those scenes, which are... They don't. They don't quite work. But that's not to say they're not enjoyable. I just don't think. I think. I think what you, you basically what you said. 
I don't think it would hurt the film if those things weren't there. It doesn't add as as much as James Cameron might think it does. But this was aimed at a slightly younger audience mm. than the uh, the first was film was. Was it PG twelve? Was it? No, it was a fifteen. It was still a fifteen. A 15. Yeah. Okay. So it still would have been an R in America, right. I guess. But it's certainly not as it's it's not the horror film that Terminator is. This is no. strictly an action film. But what's curious to me about this is logically making a sequel to the Terminator. You don't need Arnold Schwarzenegger to come back because the assassin Terminator is a different model anyway. So it could be played by a different actor. And if you remove the gimmick of the bait and switch of, you know, the Terminator being good this time, you could have any other character come back for that. I'm saying it would be a different film, but to do, to do the action set pieces and to get your story out there, you don't need Arnold to come back. But even with Jim Cameron and Linda Hamilton and, you know, the $95 million budget and all the action set pieces and all that, I don't think the audience would have turned up as much as they did with Arnold in that role. And that's how big he is at this point in his career. I mean, I think it wouldn't... Okay, so regardless of whatever we think about those scenes, I think they do work because it's only doing it and at this stage in his career we're still one is still able to capitalize directors and producers are still able to capitalize on it's funny we're going to make arnie do things and that's exactly why it's like we're going to make a terminator do things so we're going to put arnold schwarzenegger this big lug in a room full of kids we're going to have him you know play the twin of a tiny guy we're going to have him do these things and that is still a gag and it still works and there's no there's no question either that more people saw Terminator 2 than saw the Terminator. Yeah. Because of what a superstar he is at this point. Yeah. And the film, and specifically Jim Cameron and Arnold, was criticised for that. For that introduction of something bordering on family-friendly comedy in a Terminator film. Yeah. Uh, it's the yeah. dark side of being at the top of the Hollywood mm. system. But it's interesting to me that, you know... A lot of people I know will still say this is the best Terminator film. And yet at the same time criticize those things that we've just drawn on the, you know, the slightly awkward comedy and the, you know, Edward Furlong and that. And I've always stood my ground and said, you need to go back and watch the Terminator again. Because honestly, I think it's, it's really difficult to say better film, but it doesn't have the flaws that Terminator 2 has, or it doesn't have the things that bring it down slightly I, I that Terminator 2 has. Th- I agree. And, and without wishing to reiterate your point, it's they're different films, and I also think they're for different audiences. It doesn't mean that if you like one, you won't like the other, but people will be split on which one is better. And I, and I actually don't think that they're comparable because they're trying to... They are doing different things. They're telling different stories even though the basic shape is similar you quite rightly said like the first one sits very comfortably in a sci-fi horror genre the second one cannot it sits in a sci-fi action genre and is designed for younger audiences Um, that alone is going to change the film in a way uh, that is going to upset people who are fans of of the lore and want to see certain storylines play out and, and see them play out in a certain way even though we've said these things about these moments, and I think we spent probably far too long talking about those moments, and I know that they're really talked about as the bits that people either dislike or maybe even like the most about these movies. In terms of pacing, 
And we've talked about James Cameron's structure yeah. before. Phenomenal. Something phenomenal. in those bits is necessary. Oh, and, absolutely. And so even though we're saying the film could lose them, you need some downtime in those bits. That is, For sure. And, yeah, yeah. and levity is an important part of that. Yeah. We can debate till the cows come home about whether it's we got it, they got it right or not. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. The film is fine with the minute. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think in terms of pacing and structure, very few people do it as well as Jim Cameron. He's got his detractors. I don't think dialogue is necessarily his strongest suit, but that doesn't make him a bad screenwriter. No. He knows how to pace those things yeah. uh, to to perfection, in my opinion. I, I agreed. I re- that's the exact wrote I note. The, the wrote I note? <laughs> <laughs> that's the exact wrote I note. The exact note I wrote. Um. One of the bits, my most perfect moment for this movie is Sarah Connor's escape scene from the prison, from the from the psychiatric ward. Well, that's the first time all of the characters are coming together. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. I, yeah, I understand it's capitalizing on everything that's built before. Yeah, yeah. But it plays out perfectly. Oh, it, it is. It's brilliantly yeah. judged. Yeah. I was talking about how, how Cameron uses details to, to sell this world to you. I love uh, when they're actually in the tail end of that sequence. They're broken out and they're in the car and the T-1000 is running behind and his arms turn into hooks. He's clawing his way up the car. Like, I know that there's lots of different things going on in that shot. And I can look at that and say, that's an effect. But when he is, his hands are smashing into the metal of the car and then smashing the back window... And then Arnie leans out the car and blasts off the end of the hook to dislodge him. It's, it, it is flawless. Like, you totally believe that this guy yeah. is liquid metal and can turn his hands into, into no hard steel. That, you know, you talked about the effects. This film, conceptually, is full of cinematic firsts. And, uh, you know, you talk about the car scene. For me, it's the cleverness of the, the T-1000 and how it uses its abilities. And it's like... What would you do if you were the T one thousand? And it go it not only spikes they they escape into the into the lift or elevator, uh, and it spikes it, its arms, I guess, through the lift in in the form of a huge blade like sword like thing. Then splits that blade in half and then turns the ends of the the point of the blade into hooks that then opens up the lift with it. It's excellent. And then oozing through the top of the elevator car into a blob on the floor and then giving chase straight away. So in, so inventive in terms of it's like, and, and yeah. really, really adds to the menace. Even though I knew, I'd known every beat of this movie, I'm feeling the threat, the menace, the feel of the whole thing from with, with the first five minutes. The opening sequence where Sarah Connor's talking about this world we're about to enter into. It's incredible. And it doesn't let up throughout the whole film. Every scene, you're remi- because of that opening sequence, you're reminded of what's at stake here. And it explains our character's motivations, like all of them. So to to say that he doesn't necessarily know how to write dialogue, he certainly knows how to write characters. He certainly knows how to oh, yeah. give yeah, characters yeah. their appropriate motivations. And that that's one of the reasons why the film is so compelling from start to finish. Well, given that we've mentioned dialogue, do you have any favourite lines? <laughs> Because I'll be honest, I actually didn't write any down. Neither did I, and it could be because I know every line. They are sort of done to death. There are I a mean, lot of lines that are memorable. That's the baby, fine. Yeah. You I know. want your clothes, your shoes, and Boots. your motorcycle. 
I want your clogs, your t-shirt, and your vehicle. I want your lighter, your beard, and your underwear. <laughs> I want your cowboy boots, your cowboy hat, your cigar. And nothing else. I'm happy walking around all breezy. I love the way when he enters the bar that all the women are checking him out. That one woman just goes, oh. Yeah, really. Like, she really <laughs> does it. Yeah, Every single one, like they eye him up and down. I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't yeah. you? Have a good look. I love the effect of how they time travel. Yeah, it's an improvement. It's yeah. superb. It, it, it does like, look great. Yeah. yeah, it takes a chunk out of a of a, a wagon, yeah, and it's like nothing survives yeah. that except for flesh. That's what it's telling you. Like, but then it, that doesn't explain how the T one thousand goes through because he doesn't have any flesh. But he doesn't have moving parts either. That's true. So See, it's potential that it is kind of an organic thing, right? You don't know. Here's an here's a nitpick that I have, and I understand why it isn't this way, but I always thought the cop that is looking around that the T-1000 comes and stabs in the stomach should be Robert Patrick. I've said that time and time again. You're absolutely right. Um, but, because we don't see... do we, we do see Robert Patrick. He has a form, yeah. right? He has a form already. And yeah. so that's why he keeps returning to that form. Does he... Here's another nitpick on the same scene. You're right, I think. And I don't think we should really see the form. I think he should be like a kind of amorphous liquid metal... But then we would know that he's a liquid metal terminal. Yeah, and so that's... Because we or, don't see him stab yeah, the guy in or the stomach. I guess either. just not see him. Seeing him change shape would, would ruin the reveal later on. Here's the other nitpick. And I, I didn't go back and look at it, but I swear that he actually takes his clothes off. The policeman's clothes off. When he's clothed again, you see the policeman there on the floor without his clothes on. Is that true? Yeah, I don't think so. I didn't spot that anyway. If that was the case, my nitpick would have been that why does he need to do that? Because he generates his yeah, own shape, exactly. including yeah. clothes. Speaking of generating shapes, my other scene where he takes somebody else's shape, which I, I love the whole thing, is when he uh, takes on the appearance of his foster mum and that yeah. scene with the phone booth and everything like that. Brilliant. And he kills Mason from 24, like using the... Is it Mason? Yeah. Yeah, Xander Berkeley. First appearance of kind of dicks, huh? How's Wolfie? Wolfie's fine, honey. Wolfie's just fine. Where, Where are you? Shrunk. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> it. She just casually sort of puts the phone over her, her ear. And the good thing, like, credit to the actress, right? Because I believe that that's the T-1000 morphed yeah, yeah. as her, but it's not, obviously. It's the actress playing it. I mean, I'll be back in this. It works. If it's going to work in any film, it has to work in uh, this, well, right? I was going to say... I wasn't going to say it works. Uh, I was going to say doesn't matter whether it's there or not for me, actually. It doesn't. Yeah. But given that it was the Terminator that first said, I'll be back, I think it's fitting Oh yeah, God. that a Terminator says, even, I'll be didn't back. didn't even think that. Of course, you're right. Yeah. I'm not going to say it doesn't work. I understand why it's there. Fine. But it was just like, <laughs> I'm saying I'll be back now. Like it was played and shot that way. And I'm like... Did it need to be like I'm saying the line now? He he almost looks at the camera. Yeah, they're leaning into it too much now, and they That's do. Right, yeah, they do for the next few films. Yeah, and I, it's not necessary. Get down is said a lot in this, and not always by yeah. Arnie, by Sarah Connor and whatever. Get down. Yeah, I think that's where I get it from. I thought that get down was an iconic line. I was expecting to hear it in every film. It's really this one. This is the one where it's so much in it. It's really hard, man. I don't think I got a favorite line. I nah, like I, I don't. I don't really either. And they're certainly not Arnie' favorite lines if they are, because he doesn't have that much to say. Reboot, remake, nah. sequel, not no, even worth no. doing it. I mean, 
Okay, in terms of the franchise, as far as I'm concerned, the franchise ends here. Now, there is... Whoa, 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 whoa. Really? In terms of telling the story that is actually interesting, I think this film has a definitive ending point that is enough for me. I don't need to see the continued adventures of Sarah Connor. We've wiped out the threat of Skynet, right? And I think with hindsight, we know that this level of filmmaking is never achieved again within the franchise. However, I, I agree I, that I, agree I think with. that there are enough concepts in Terminator three for me to allow that one, not just the ending. Yeah, it's exactly if, what I was going to say. Yeah. If yeah. this film is about, you know, causality, I think Terminator three is about fatalism. Yeah. And I think it works. It works the history of Terminator three back into the events of this film. In quite a smart way, but we'll talk about that when we get Agreed. To, and, to Terminator 3. And I'm glad that Arnie's in it so we can talk about it. So if I'm playing reboot, remake, sequel at the time that this was made, I'd say sequel and, oh, right, give me the Terminator 3 script. And I'm not unhappy with that. You're absolutely right when you say the quality of filmmaking has not been replicated since or even got anywhere near. Um, but I wasn't unhappy with T3. I always used to think... Because T1 had one Terminator in it, T2 had two in it, I really want to see three Terminators in Terminator 3. You kind of do. Well, we'll have to talk about that when we get to it, because I do not remember that. So, rankings? It's difficult, um, because given what I've said, I can't, in good faith, put it above the Terminator. Now, I think, depending on how you judge it, there are things about Terminator 2 that are far better than any film on this list i mean the scale of the action scenes and the proficiency of the action scenes just some of the stunts like flying a helicopter under the underpass you know someone had to do that yeah and that is much more dangerous than it might look on yeah yeah (laughs) yeah for sure you've got all sorts of wind shear issues and all sorts of stuff like that right and and for my money action filmmaking on this scale in this sort of budget movie, I don't think there's been a chase film is oversimplifying it, but I don't think there's been a chase film uh, as successful as this until Mad Max Fury Road last year. There's not much in between. Not to say there aren't great action films, you know, there obviously are, we've got the are. Matrix and things like that. But I mean, the, the chase scenes in Ronin, whatever you think about that, I thought, thought were excellent as well. I, I'm, when I say a chase film, I mean a film that is essentially one long chase. Oh, fair enough. Fine. Okay. So on that level, I think you could you would be justified to say, put this number one. But there's more important things to judge here. So I'm actually going to say above Running Man, below the Terminator for me. So that puts it number three on my list. So my top three now are Total Recall, Terminator, and Terminator 2. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. It is hard, man, for the reasons that you've described. And I've got extra reasons in it. This feeling that Arnie's part of the scenery like I can't I can't even use Arnie as a criteria for judging this film because and that's not to say that he does anything wrong no no, absolutely not no it's actually more to say that he's part of the furniture I don't know how else to describe it he's like he he is he is T2 yeah there's no T2 without Arnie exactly but I think the other elements of the film are more interesting than him (laughs) they're more interesting than the T-800 character Arnie makes this movie. This movie was the phenomenon it was because of him. Sure. A role taking the role away from Arnie is sacrilege. So that's that's what I'm saying. This ranking is so difficult. I can't even use Arnie as a, a criteria. That's how hard it is for me. 
You see, if you put me on a desert island and you told me I had to only pick one Terminator movie, I'd have to pick this one. I couldn't. I could do away with Terminator, the first one. I enjoy watching this more, even though I, I, I really enjoyed watching Terminator this time, the first one. I can live with the memory of it. This movie has to go for me below Total Recall and above Terminator. And I'm, that's not saying that Total Recall is a better film. This is an Arnie-thology ranking for me. Arnie's performance in Total Recall is what I want from Arnie. And as an Arnie fan, he it, it's got it all, that film, for me. And uh, As a film fan, sci-fi fan, it's got it all as well. So does T2. So if I could put them together, I would. But you can't. I can't. So it has to go number two above Terminator for me. A, a recommendation by any stretch of the imagination. For sure. What... Do we have next Mr. Alleyballs? It's Dave. That's the next movie. It's not the next movie movie we'll be doing. Uh, Dave, is, he plays himself in Dave. We're not going to review it, right? Well, I think we'll, we can talk about it, but I think as part of a larger conversation about the other film that comes out in 93, which is... Uh, Last Action Hero, for sure. Yeah. And that it's very interesting that Arnie's at the level of stardom that he's at, and we'll cover this more, that he in the next movies he's he's playing himself in Dave yeah. and and in the next one as well and it's a central part of what a last action hero is about in Dave he's playing himself in a political comedy yeah which is interesting so we're actually starting to get well we're starting to get that suggestion now yeah um Dave is a great film so I'm looking forward to watching that again and I'm going to watch it but last yeah, action hero will be our well. our next episode yeah. so uh join us for that uh, until next time, chill out, dickwad. No problemo. Bye. Hasta la vista, baby. If you've been moved by any of the issues raised in this week's show, or you'd like to offer us some abusive comments of your own, or maybe even a list of your favourite Arnold Schwarzenegger films, you can email us at thearnithology at gmail.com hmm. or if you're Facebook, you can go to Facebook forward slash The Arnithology. Didn't see that coming. If you're a Twitterer, find us on Twitter at The Arnithology. Or you can visit our website www.arnithology.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>